Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Episode 15, I'm Cam Connor, along with my son, Chris. So as the holidays approach, we will be taking some time off from the podcast, not too long, but we wanted to leave you with some of the best, most interesting stories that Cam has shared over the last 14 episodes. Hopefully you've had a chance to listen to them, but in case you haven't, I know everyone's busy, here's a selection of what we think are some of the best. Hope you enjoy. You know, I played in the WHA for four years. I played against Glenn Sather for probably two, three of those years. And he was a coach, and I believe he was also a player in the WHA, but I may be wrong there. So he knew me. The year I went to Montreal, finished the year, that's the year we won the Stanley Cup, and the Canadians had one or four years in a row at that point. The World Hockey merged. At that time, and that's when they brought in four of the NHL teams, which was, I believe, Quebec Nordiques, Hartford Whalers, the Edmonton Oilers, and I believe it was Winnipeg Jets. So those four teams merged, and each team was allowed to protect, I want to say, 15 skaters. And in Montreal, we had a powerhouse team. I mean, when you win the Stanley Cup four years in a row, it's not like today. When you have free agents, your contract's up, you can go anywhere. Back in my day, they, they had Alan Eagleson, and we all know what a crook that guy was. And so he was our representative. He represented the players to the owners. So he said, oh, we got you free agency. But I think only one guy in all the years I was around that ever moved, it was Scott Stevens. The price you would pay if you went from Team A to Team B in the NHL, you had to give up the team that signed you. Five first-round draft choices in order to sign somebody. So, you know, that's a heck of a price to pay. So how could you say that there's free agency? So the teams in Montreal, I mean, the players stayed there for years and their whole career pretty well, the core of them. And so I knew I wasn't going to be one of the players that was protected that year. Um, It was just too strong of a team. The draft, if I remember correctly, was held in Montreal, and I, I happened to be at the house. And I got a phone call from Glenn Sather, and he told me that uh, I'm on his team, and I'd be there a long time, go to Edmonton and buy a house. And he asked me, he said, you know, we got a guy here in town, in Montreal, that's sitting in a hotel room, and he doesn't know anybody, and I think you can get him out of the room, go pick him up, phone him, go pick him up, take him out for a beer. I said, absolutely. He said, it's Wayne Gretz, and here's where he's staying, and uh, give him a call. So I phoned Wayne up. And I go pick him up outside his hotel and take him to a bar. And that's when I first met Wayne. Was that So we're at the bar, making small talk. We don't know each other. And so the one common denominator that he knew was that I had played in the National League for one year. And I played in the World Hockey for one year. Whereas Wayne, if I'm not mistaken, had played in the WHA one season. He had asked me, he was a little nervous, he said, Cam, You've played in both leagues. 
Is it uh, a big step between the NHL and the World Hockey, or is it pretty well on par? What I didn't know to answer Wayne's question, you know, when you play for the Montreal Canadiens, whatever city you go into, you could be the last place team in the NHL, but when Montreal comes into town, especially the defending Stanley Cup champion, these last place teams, they rise for the occasion. So every game that I played with Montreal, every game that I watched, it was fast-paced, it was good hockey, and I walked away with the impression that this is how the NHL played every game. And so to answer Wayne's question, I said, Wayne, the NHL is uh, another level above the world hockey. And uh, I said, Wayne, I know, I didn't know much about Wayne. Now, in Montreal the year before, we never mentioned Wayne's name in the dressing room. He was still, like I said, in the other league. And he's pretty young. He was he was 18 the year, I, years old the year I played with him. So I said, Wayne, I know that, you know, you've been a pretty good hockey player all your life. And I said, but it's going to take you a year or two to, to kind of catch on in this new league. And uh, you're going to do well, but it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve for you. And I remember, in all serious, he, he gave me this quizzical look. Like a dog when you kind of whistle high pitch, he turns his head to the side. It was almost like that. He was looking at me like, what are you talking about? And little did I know, Wayne had a lot of confidence in his ability to play hockey. I had never seen him play. So, again, I told him it's going to take him a while to adjust to you could talk a little bit about what it was like to meet Andre the Giant. I was living in New York, and Rod came into town. I was a, probably a five-minute drive from the, at the time it was called WWF headquarters in Greenwich, Connecticut. So when Rod came in for business or fighting in Long Island or New Haven, Connecticut, or Madison Square Gardens, we would always hook up. So he had asked me, he said, well, let's go for a beer tonight. And he brought some of the wrestlers. And there was, like you said, Andre the Giant, uh, the Hart Brothers were there, Mean Gene Oakland. Um, we always hung out with Cowboy Bob Orton. And I remember sitting at the bar beside Andre the Giant. And I don't think anybody can say that they're used to having a, a gentleman the size of Andre the Giant sitting next to him. His head was as big as a medicine ball. And I remember he'd order some kind of drink that came in a glass. And he would put his hands around that glass, and you couldn't even see the glass in his hands. And his fingers, I look at them, they look like dill pickles. They were just unbelievable. When you're talking to Andre, at least my experience, I think when you get to be that big, and I, what was he, like 500 pounds? When you get to be the size of Andre, I think your vocal cords aren't that coordinated because it's hard to understand them. And, you know, it, it was just neat being next to a guy that size. And so, yeah, that was, that was, that was, that was a, quite an experience that I've never forgotten. So Rod's, uh, Rod's got a match coming up now. He's had both hips replaced. He had told me at one point that, you know, his wrestling career was over. And then the next thing you know, I see him on TV fighting again with, Two replaced tips. And he just said that Ted Turner offered him so much money, he had to come back. So this match was in Madison Square. And so, I mean, I used to play out of Madison Square, so I mean, I'm familiar with it. So he got me a pass. And you have to wear the pass all the time. So I got down at the dressing room level, but I would never go into the dressing room. I just kind of stood out and, uh, like, off to the side, just next to this hallway. 
when I was waiting for Rod. I think everybody knows who John Cena is. And that is one big boy. And so I'm standing off the main walkway, off to the side, and I've got my pass. It's it's a stick-on. And I have it on my like thigh, on my leg. I didn't have it on my chest, visible. And he had to go out into the ring, so he was getting himself all psyched up. And I'm not even anywhere near this guy. And he's walking with his head down. And he went off the main path area. And then he come up and he bumps into me. And he says to me, get the F out of the way. What the F you know, you doing here? I'm going to kick this so out of you. And he went berserk on me. And he said, if you're still here when my match is over, I'm coming after you. And I don't, I don't really know where his head's at. You know, I watched the Bellas, it's called on TV, and his wife. Nice lady, and he acts like a gentleman, but he wasn't a gentleman that day, I guarantee you. You know, I'm in my 50s now, and John Cena wants to beat me up. And I'm saying, well, okay, it wouldn't be a wise move because I'm not in shape anymore. And uh, that guy doesn't have an ounce of body fat. So you, you honestly didn't see him? No, I give you my word. I just, I know it's hard to believe, but uh, maybe when I was younger, but not in my 50s, I, I know better. Especially him. This is what he does for a living. So, anyway, so I'm a little nervous now because, you know, he's gone out to fight. And uh, I remember Rod walked by and said, Rod, see was going to get me. Rod never fought any battles for me. And I know me, when I was younger, you know, in my prime, I probably would have said, I mean, I would have fought him. I, I'm pretty sure I would have, but I would have got the first few shots in. I don't know what would happen after that. But I would have. I probably was stupid enough to fight him. But not when I'm in my 50s. So I'm a little worried now. And so he fights and he comes back and he kind of looks at me and he heads down the hallway towards the dressing rooms. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. So again, Rod didn't care. I'm on my own. So, I don't know, half hour goes by and Rod comes out and says, Ken, why don't you come in the dressing room? instead of standing out here. And all the wrestlers changed together. I said, well, Cena in there? He said, no, he's not in there. I said, okay. So I went in there and all the wrestlers were in there. And there was no room beside Rod. So I, I, I remember sitting beside this guy. He was like, he's over 500 pounds. He was a big guy. And we started talking. And I was still a little worried about Cena. I said, Cena, is he gone already? He goes, no, he's probably around somewhere. What? And I told him what had happened. He said to me, I be a little crazy. He said, You just stick with me, he said, and I'll uh I'll take care of you. Man, that guy had to go up take a pee. I, I was thinking I should go with him in case Cena came in. But I hung back and uh, as it worked out, Cena did come in and he looks at me and I'm like, Oh my lord, but at least he got to speak who's gonna help me. Anyways, I guess Cena started relaxing. I don't really know what happened, buddy. He didn't come after me, which uh, I'm grateful for, for sure. And you actually, since we do lots of tangents, you actually saw a mob bit, or something to do with a mob bit, right, when you were in New York? Yes, I did, actually. I didn't see the mob hit itself, but I got there about 30 seconds later. When I finished hockey, I started working in Midtown Manhattan in the computer consulting industry, which I was in for 25 years. And I was leaving work at about 5.30, heading to Grand Central Station. And the New York City blocks, like if you live in Canada and you go to Toronto or Calgary, Edmonton, the city blocks are about half the size of a New York City block. So I was walking to the end of the block, and there was Paul Castellano, who was the head of the mob in New York City. 
laying there with his bodyguard. He had, uh, the two of them had just been shot in front of a restaurant called Sparks. And again, that was about a 30 second walk from my office. The cops hadn't got there yet. So I just see these two guys laying in the street. And, uh, when I read John Gotti's book, John Gotti had said that him and his henchman, Sonny Bravado or something, was sitting across the street watching all this unfold. And that they actually had three guys, um, on three different corners of the street in yellow raincoats. And the reason for that is, is that if the, if the Paul Castellano got by the first guy, couldn't get him, they had to go by the second guy on the next corner. And if that guy didn't meet him, he had to turn right down on one way. There was another guy. And the reason they had them all in yellow uh, raincoats, because he said, when you go to identify these guys, what are you going to say? Well, they were wearing yellow raincoats, so there's really no description. So. so as we've shared in the past, we are partnering with a really great company called SeatGeek, and we've been approached by a few companies to partner with them on our podcast, and we've turned them down. But with SeatGeek, we knew it was a great opportunity for many reasons. It is an app that I personally use to get all my concert tickets, most recently the Red Hot Chili Peppers, where I did take my dad. And one of the benefits of using SeatGeek is that it really does save you time and money. And the key is, is that the app searches multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. So we mentioned before that the arena in our city, for some reason, all the concerts get sold out immediately or it seems like only the really high seats are left. So what I do is I open up my SeatGeek app and I look for the concert and there always seems to be a really great selection of seats at a good price. And so what SeatGeek has offered our listeners is a pretty good opportunity where you can save $20 if you download the SeatGeek app and you enter the promo code PENALTY. And then once you download the app, enter the promo code, save your $20. You can look up uh, a hockey game, sporting events, theater, concerts, even comedy acts. So take a, take a chance on SeatGeek. See what you think. We really like it. I've used it in the past. And it really is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. And, they, and live event tickets make a really good holiday present. So... If you can't think of something to get your dad or your loved one, look up what's available in your city through the SeatGeek app and make sure you use the promo code PENALTY. It's interesting when you play for the Canadians. The fans love this hockey team. They know all the players, and if you go out, the fans definitely come over and ask for your autograph. If you go to the bar, you got to behave yourself because... The fans know who you are. And it was so interesting. So if a couple of us went out night before a game, two nights before the game, to a bar in in Montreal, let's just make this up. So let's say I had uh, two beer and a shooter. And then went to another bar a little while later and had, you know, another beer and a shooter. The next morning, you would come in, in your dressing room, and there'd be a note in your stall. And it'd say, go see Scotty. So you go to... See Scotty, and he'd say, "Well, uh, 
Cam, last night you were seen in the bar Thursdays, you had two beer and a shooter, and then you were seen over at the bar called Fridays, and then you had another beer and a shooter. The fans would phone and tell on you. Like, they loved their hockey team, and they wanted us to win, and they would phone all the time, and it was quite regular. You had to go see Scotty, because he knew exactly what you were doing the night before or two nights before. So, some of the guys who are nameless, they were sneaky. they go to quieter little bars and try to blend in, and they'd still, you know, poor Rick Chartrop is, Rick was single living in New York City, or living in Montreal, and he wasn't as sneaky as some of the other single guys, so he got more trouble than anybody. I think it's 40 years later. He can be no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not naming no. anybody, no. no. So, you know, that was always interesting, and I remember Kenny Dryden, there was where I lived, Kenny was nearby, Lafleur was nearby, Ginny was nearby, Robinson, and like Cor- yeah, Corey Lemaire. We all kind of lived in the same area, so we would carpool all the time. And quite often, Dryden would pick me up in the mornings for when we go to our charter or we, you know, flying out commercial airlines. And he had a, and I want to say it was like a '64 Comet. It was an older car in good shape, so he'd pick me up. And the damn thing, though, is whenever we'd be gone for a day or two and you'd come back to the airport, Kenny needed a new battery. Kenny was so cheap, he never would go spend money on a battery. He always had his booster cables. So, you know, I'm in a hurry to get back. Well, Kenny's car wouldn't start. But all he had to do is he'd pull his booster cables out of his trunk, go stand in front of his vehicle with his booster cables. First car that goes by, they go, that's Kenny driving. So we never had any problems getting people to boost, but I almost went out and bought, you know, Kenny a new battery, but he made a lot more money than me, so. The other thing that I, uh, when I think about uh, winning the Stanley Cup, we won it in Montreal, and Pierre Trudeau came in our dressing room after the game. You know, the wives are in the dressing room, the guys that are single, the girlfriends in the media. And anytime I've saw a championship team that had just won everything, the champagne is flying and there isn't anybody that doesn't have champagne on them. So I'm sitting in my stall and I'm, it's been about 10 minutes and, you know, we've been in there celebrating and everybody's wet. And I see Pierre Trudeau walk by with his bodyguards. He's got a gray suit on and I've noticed he doesn't have any champagne on him. So, again, those devil horns come out, and I got a bottle of Dom Perignon beside me, so I slowly get the cork off it. And, you know, we've all drank it before, but I've never wasted it and shot it around, so I don't really know the trajectory of this uh, champagne. So I give it a good shake, and I aim it at Trudeau, and I want to get him in the chest. Then I say to myself, well, maybe I'm aiming a little too high. I don't want to be disrespectful and get the prime minister in the face. So I lowered my aim a little bit, and I let it fly, and I hit Pierre Trudeau in his gray suit in the crotch. And it, and it looked just like he pissed his pants, honest to God. And so he looked at his crotch, and he looks at me, and he looks at his crotch, and he's looking at me, and he's not smiling. And, and his bodyguards are kind of like looking up here as if to say, should we get this guy? And I just say, guys, relax, you're in the dressing room. And then about three seconds later, Pierre put a smile on his face. Anyways, Pierre, if you, well, you're not listening, but I didn't try to get you, buddy. That's just where it ended up. Maybe Justin. Yeah, Justin. Yeah. Justin, if you're listening, I didn't mean to get you that. There was a lot of controversy about putting your name 
on the Stanley Cup, and a couple players actually went to bat for you. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, you know, I didn't know anything about that at all. I didn't. So somebody brought it to my attention one day, and I said, really? And then I did talk to, I think it was, I want to say Ken Dryden. And uh, what it was is that the league had said that, you know, back then they would say whose name goes on the cup. I was there all year. Um, I, I know I did my best to be a good teammate. I had the respect of my teammates. When the NHL told them that everybody's name was going to be honored except for mine and Yvonne Cornway, our three player reps, which if I'm not mistaken, was Dryden, Ganey, and Doug Riseboro. They talked amongst themselves and they just said, okay, if you don't put those two guys' name on the Stanley Cup, you do not have permission to put the rest of the team players' name on the Stanley Cup. You just put the Montreal Canadiens, and that's that. Well, the league you know, obviously didn't want that, so they relented, and they said, okay, our name will go on. And we actually got to visit the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto, where you can see the Stanley Cup. We saw your name, so it's definitely on the cup. The next year, um, I, I'd always seen this man around our practice rink in Rye, New York. This, the area was called the Playland, where our practice rink was. And there was a little man named Tony. He had, you know, I always think how fortunate I've been in life. I was dealt some pretty good cards. And, uh, you know, I look at a guy like Tony. He was a small Italian man. And he had uh, one leg shorter than the other. And I would say he wore a, like a, like a boot with about a seven inch platform rubber sole on it to bring his legs up to the same to the same height and he walked around with his with a short leg and his big boot and to top it off I don't know if anybody's going to understand what I'm trying to tell you but if you were to put your hands out in front of you with your palms down Tony was born when we would put our hands palms down his palms would be facing the sky yeah, I don't know if you can figure what I'm trying to say. It sounds like his hands were backwards. Well, that sounds like maybe the best way to explain it. And so he had a he had a few a few disability problems for sure. But I admire the man so much because for me, I probably would have just hid and uh, collected unemployment, disability, and uh, you wouldn't have saw much about much from me. But this guy, he worked for minimum wage at Playland and. He would, his job was to get a wet, wet mop, mop, and he would mop around the boards all the way around the rink. And so I learned from Roddy Piper. I learned from Gordy Howe. Some of these less fortunate people, people just walk by you and ignore you like you're not even there. And that's not the right thing to do, especially for me when, you know, I've been so fortunate to have the kind of life that I had. As I said, learning from other guys, for example, with Gordy. Whenever there was little kids on the, you know, at the rinks and they were on the other side of the glass and they'd be looking up with these big eyes and that's Gordy Howe because I'm sure the parents had told them about Gordy. Gordy would gather a little bit of snow off the ice and he'd come by and he'd dump it on the kids and the kids, you know, just to give them a little attention and smile. And so I said, well, I'm going to do that to Tony. So Tony be, you know, mopping by this by next to the boards and, and I'd come by and I'd grab some snow and I'd dump it on Tony. And he looked at me the first couple of times as if he thought I was just being mean to him. And I'd smile at him and 
And then he, he caught on that it wasn't me trying to be mean. I was just trying to give Tony some attention, and I'd smile. And, and it got to the point where Tony, when he was mopping around the board, you could see him looking up and down, trying to see where Mr. Connor was. And then if he saw me, he'd quickly get away from the boards, and he'd smile. And so over time, I'd always walk in, and I'd say hello to Tony and ask him how he's doing. And then uh, I'd see him when we come off after practice around noon hour. He got his lunch break, and he'd be sitting in the stands, right kind of where we'd go off, and he'd smile at me, and I'd talk to him. And one day I said, Tony, what are you eating your lunch out there for? I said, come on in the dressing room. You can sit in my stall. And he said, well, Mr. Connor, that dressing room is only for the Rangers. I said, Tony, you're my guest, buddy. You come in and you sit in my stall. Don't you worry about it. So I would bring Tony in on a regular basis, and he would eat his sandwiches in my stall, and everybody would go about their day with Tony there, and i go get him a Coke or some yogurt or whatever that he wanted, orange juice, and, uh, you know, shower and, and see him out when it's all over. And I knew that was good for him, and I'm sure he had a story to tell his wife, and, and I was only too happy to, to do that. And then the day came when I got sent to the minors, and it's not a good day. In fact, as it worked out, I was at the rink that morning. Craig Patrick was there. He talked to me. How's it going? Didn't say a word. I get home. Craig Patrick phoned me at home rather than tell me to my face. He phoned me at home and he told me I'm, I'm going to the minors. I cleared waivers and, you know, that uh, that was a changing point in my life. And uh, so I had to come back to the rink and pick up my gear. And as I was heading past, Tony was there and Tony said, Mr. Connor, I heard you're not going to be with us anymore. And I said, that's, you know, that's true, Tony. I got sent to the minors. But don't you worry. I said, the other guys, they'll take good care of you. And it broke my heart. He said to me, you know, Mr. Connor, he said, you and Ron Greshner are the only two hockey players that talk to me. He said, everybody else walks by me. And that, then it does today. It still hurts me a lot that, you know, and I use the phrase, the cards we were dealt. All the hockey players were healthy, were making good money. People want your autograph. And this poor man who who could have stayed home, but he's willing to make minimum wage, and he brings in his bag lunch every day. I admired that man, and it bothered me that nobody else would even say hello or pay attention to that to Tony. So even today, like I said, after 30 years, it still chokes me up to think that uh, people just walk by a man like that. So that's that's my story, Chris. Yeah, well, that's really interesting, and I guess it's a, a good lesson as well when we played in the Denver I don't know what the arena was called but it was like an 18,000 seat arena as we go on the ice there was one guy right by where we go on and we were so close he could touch us and he sat right in front of the glass and he was the rudest man in 11 years that I played pro even in the junior I've never seen anybody as ignorant he'd look you right in the eye and he'd tell you to go after yourself and suck this and he was gross and you just want to spear the guy or punch him but you can't and he knows you can't so he was rude 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 every single time and you know you gotta walk by him and he's always got some smart ass comment well one particular night we're taking on calgary's farm team and uh, there was a guy on our team named mike back some fan was chirping on him so he was next to the boards chirping back to the stand and then they threw hot coffee on him 
Mike got so upset, he took his stick and he threw it at this guy in the stands like a propeller on an airplane. He was going around like that. And that man ducked and it hit the lady behind him right in the forehead with the butt of the stick. And so Mike went into the stands to fight this guy. And George McPhee and another guy named Steve Hakala weren't dressed that night. And they were on the other side of the arena. But George and Mike were pretty tight. So George... Steve Hackler, they come running all the way around the arena and then down to where the fight Mike was fighting and they joined in to help. And we had a few other teammates fighting in the stands. And there was a guy named Jeff Brubaker. Him and I, we, we kind of squared off and we got each other. And we were standing right in front of that one ignorant fan I told you about. Just fighting was kind of all coming towards him. I see this guy, he reached into the to, to like the back of his pants and he pulls out a friggin' handgun. And he's got his handgun in front of him and he's pointing to keep people away. And I said to Brubaker, look at this! And he, and he said, the guy's got a gun. So we got a hold of Raph and we said, hey, look at this guy, he's got a gun out in the stands. Well, the police were called and uh, this fight went on for quite a while, but the police, they got there pretty quick and they ended up handcuffing some of the hockey players, taking them away. And they came into our dressing room after. And what we found out is that guy with the handgun, handgun, who was the most ignorant guy, as I've said already, he was actually an off-duty cop. And so nothing happened to him, you know. But with Mike, he was talking to me when uh, after because they let him out of jail. And he, he got a hold of me and he said, can I get sued? Yeah, I said, you got to hit that lady in the head with a stick. So he said, well, I'm going to get everything moved out of my name. And I said, it's probably too late. Well, the next day, that lady called our hockey team, got a hold of the hockey team. And all she wanted was for Mike to come over to her, her house and apologize. So Mike couldn't get in that cab quick enough. So God bless her that she didn't, you know, sue Mike. Uh, he didn't have a lot of money. And he, he was a minor league guy. But that's kind of what I think about in the minors there, Chris. Not a lot of fun, I can tell you that. And then, <laughs> this was a personal story, and I'm, I hope to not bore you with this one. But it was kind of interesting. Out of Winnipeg, when I was there in the off-season, my wife had heard about this psychic named Doc Dobie. She was supposed to be the very best in Winnipeg. She worked with the, with the Winnipeg police and helping find bodies and lost children. She was really good. So my wife said, well, I'm going to go there and uh, meet with her, and I'm not telling her a thing. I'm not telling her we live in New York or anything. So she went in, and, and this Doc Dobie allows you to Write down whatever she tells you. So some of the things that I recall that she told my wife, Sherilyn, was that uh, you live somewhere where you're near water. And sure enough, in New York, we live three minutes away from the ocean. And your husband does something for a living that people either clap for or boo. Well, that was amazing. She figured that out. She didn't know a thing about me. And so, obviously, being a hockey player, you get booed or they clap for you. One of the things she said is that you live in a little city or town that starts with R. Well, that was wrong because we lived in a place called Porchester. But when we drove back that summer to Porchester, over the summer, they changed the name Porchester to Rybrook, New York. So, I'm going, holy cow, this is pretty good. And then the other thing, which relates to Peter Pockington, she said, your husband always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Tell him never to go into business with a person whose initials are PP. And so I 
just thought about that. That's Peter Pockington. That's got to be him. So many, many years go by, and I moved back to Edmonton in about 1990, and I do want to be an entrepreneur, and I have visions of a driving range that I had. Some pretty unique ideas as to how to make this successful. I did all the research on how much money I would need to buy land and put up netting and build the clubhouse, etc., etc. So I actually brought out a couple of the ex Oilers. Uh, well, one was Charlie Huddy, who was still playing, and Dave Hunter. And, and I gave him a tour of this piece of property, and there was a house on this property. It was 32 acres within the city limits, and it was across from a golf course, and it was for a really good price. And, and I and I shared my vision and what we could do, and they both said, you know what, that's a great idea. But, you know, one that didn't have any money, and one said he lost 20000 in investment a couple of years before. So he didn't want to spend any money. And, you know, there's no right or wrong. It's his money. But obviously, he just signed a $2.6 million contract. So he wasn't an entrepreneur. And that's fine. So I wanted to go ahead. I had just enough money to do this thing myself, put up a driving range. But if it rained all summer, I was dead in the water. I had no extra cash. And I really didn't want to borrow it. So I said, you know what? When I played with the Oilers, Peter Parkinson always told me that if I ever wanted to go in business, he'd be willing to go in business with me. So I said, I'm going to phone Peter. So I phoned Peter up, and uh, his receptionist said, oh, Cam, he's just on the phone. I'll have him call you back as soon as he gets off. So I'm waiting for Peter's call. Probably 20, 25 minutes go by, and then I remember what Dot Dobie told me. She said, never go into business with a person whose initials are PP. So... Being a little superstitious that Dot Doby got uh, a lot of things right, I did phone uh, the receptionist back and tell her, you know what, I got my question answered. Petey doesn't have to call me back. Would have been interesting to see if uh, what would have happened, because that definitely would have been a good investment. Whether it was with the right person, we'll never know. Well, you're right about that, because that piece of property I was looking at, it is all housing now. The real estate agents bought the golf course out as well. I, I Seriously, we would have made millions. I knew it was the way to go, but, you know, I talked about it, didn't do it, and, and that's the difference between successful people and non-successful. The successful ones, they will talk about it, they'll do it. So it is what it is. It was that it was a really tough, tough league. Is that true? Chris, that is true. It goes back to what I said, you know, we had real young players and really old players and a few superstars. And I had said earlier today that Philadelphia Flyers is winning the Stanley Cup with the Broad Street Bullies, the rough, goony type of hockey. Playing in Phoenix, for example, there was a team, I'm, I'm part of the era where we used to have bench brawls. And for you people that follow hockey today, you may not even know or have ever seen a bench brawl. But that's where there's some problems on the ice and both teams leave the bench. And they are brawling against each other, 20 against 20 for the most part. And the refs, they just stand back and they let everybody burn themselves out. And after 20 or 30 minutes, then they'll get involved to start, you know, ejecting people off the ice. You'll never see that again, these bench brawls. In fact, you don't see even very many fights nowadays. But I remember back in the World Hockey Association, there was a team called Minnesota Fighting Saints. I've spoke about them before, and they had the core of their hockey team were 
basically the real guys from the movie Slapshot. And you've all seen what that was like. That's what those guys were like. They were tough. And there wasn't two or three of them. There was ten of them that were crazy guys on the ice. So our team in Phoenix, we played in Phoenix against the Fighting Saints. In the warm-up, you can see in the warm-up, they brought up all the goons from their farm teams. Like every one of them that's in Slapshot. And we said, well, this is going to be an interesting game. My roommate in Phoenix uh, was a fellow by the name of Barry Dean. He was a first-round draft choice in the NHL, chose to go to the World Hockey Association. And I have a lot of respect for Barry Dean, one of the finest guys around. He got in a fight on the ice with a guy named Paul Holgram, and I believe Paul is the president of the Flyers today. Paul was an American boy, a big boy. He played a physical game. He played, he was a good hockey player. He was well-rounded. But him and Barry started to fight. And my roommate was getting the worst of it. And so, I'll never forget it. This is my roommate. So, I had to get involved and help Barry out. I had just finished my shift. I was tired. So, I'm not going to go over and suck a Paul Holgram. But what I did is I just jumped on him and knocked him over and I kind of covered his head so that Barry couldn't punch him if Barry was going after him. Well, that's all we needed to start a bench brawl. And as I'm on top of Hogan, we're wrestling and kind of fighting, and all of a sudden somebody's grabbing me by the scruff of the neck and Paul Hogan and I let go. Now, I'm fighting a guy named Kurt Brackenberry. And if you look up his stats, Kurt was a fighter, stocky, always in shape, and he loved to fight. And he's fresh right off the bench. I just had my shift, and I, I just was taking on Holgram, so I'm tired. And so Kurt Brackenberry and I, we turn around, and we go at it, and it's a good first. This is a bench brawl now. So we have a good first fight, and then we get each other over the penalty box, and we're both leaning over the boards, holding on to each other, and I'm huffing and puffing, and he says to me, you ready to go again? I said, not yet. So he gave me another 30 seconds to catch my breath. And then we let go and went at it a second time. And then we held each other over the boards again. He says, you ready again? I said, yep. We let go and we fought a third time. And then after the third time, Kurt Brackenberry says to me, hey, Cam, why don't we fight somebody else? So I said, well, if you want to. So we let go. And, you know, I went and got another fight. And he went and got into some other fights. You know, there were some guys that got cut pretty good in these they're just like a barroom brawl oh it was I think, yeah it was bad and so game kicked out a lot of players gaze the game finishes and there's bumps and bruises and cuts and swollen eyes and broken noses it's, it's crazy and about within a week later we had to go to play in Durham, the minnesota fighting saints so the fans obviously had read the the, the summaries of the hockey game in Phoenix, it was sold out. And I think this uh, arena in St. Paul held it held about eighteen or 19,000 people. It was sold out to the rafters. And one thing that I realized is I read a program before the game. We were all nervous because we know we're in there right now. We're going to be brawling. We know it. And I'm reading the program before the game, and they have in the Slapshot movie, they're called the Hansen Brothers. In reality, they're the Carlson Brothers. That's the real name. And they're all 6'3 and big boys. So I fought one guy named Jack Carlson before, and Jack, you know, I, 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 I beat him. It wasn't anything 
really one-sided, and, and I got him down, and I was on top of him. And I felt like I was riding a Brahma bull. I could feel the strength in this guy. And I remember telling myself, oh, let this guy up. My God, he's strong. So, anyways, we had our fight, but I knew what he was all about. And I'm reading uh, the program before the game. And it's Jack Carlson talking about, he's not afraid of anybody in the World Hockey Association. He said, the only guy that I'm afraid of, he says, is my brother, Jeff. He said, he's the toughest guy I know. I would never fight Jeff. So I go, oh my God. I beat Jack, but uh, barely. And I, I hope he's not that much better because I'm going to get pounded tonight. So the first period we go out there, the Minnesota Fighting Saints are running. All our guys, including me, and I took it. They ran me, I took it. I was just going, how many periods we got left? We got to survive. After the, between the first and second, I had to do a little bit of a gut check. And I said to myself, you coward. You better stand up out there this next period. You know, this is not the way to play hockey. Just be a man and stand up. So that was it. First shift, the three Carlson brothers were on the same line. And they're coming down the ice, and everybody peels off and just picks up their winger. They're not getting too involved in our team. And I was in my own end, and I come run. I charged him from my end, and I hit Jeff Carlson at center ice as hard as I could with a body check. And as he's flying backwards in the air, he's throwing his gloves off. And I said, oh, my God, I'm going to get shifted. But we square off, and the fans wanted to see that. So we're at center ice. We square off. I've said before, when you're scared, you can fight. And so I didn't think it was all reaction when I got in the fight. So we square off, and then Carlson comes at me. Boom, boom, boom. I hit him three in a row, and I knocked him right on his back. And I'm saying to myself, oh, I might have got lucky there. I'm thinking he's a pretty tough guy. I don't know why I knocked him down so quick. Well, he's like a Tasmanian devil. He gets up, and he's trying to throw the lines when you're holding him back, and trying to get at me, and I'm saying, good, do not let them fight me. I'm happy about that. And then the referee, his name was Bill Friday. He was quite the character. He says, all right, Carlson, you want to fight Connors? And Bill Friday has seen me fight, so I guess he thought I can hold my own. So he says, all right, Carlson, you want to fight Connors again? Let him go. And I'm thinking, don't let him go. What are you guys doing? Well, we square off again at Santa Ice. We got our fists up and we're kind of, you know, getting ready to go at it again. And then Jeff Carlson, I don't know why, he just put his fist down and skied through the penalty box. And all of a sudden, I felt so much better. And then the rest of the second period and the third period, I played my aggressive style. And that roughhousing that they brought to the first period, that slowed right down. And we ended up tying them in their own rink. So that was what the world hockey was. We Bench brawls. And again, you don't see those. Those are pretty scary. It's absolutely no control on the ice. And I believe I've probably been involved in two or three of those. You're just not fun to be part of. So that's what I remember about, you know, the WHA and how, how aggressive that kind of hockey was. Well, that definitely answers the question of if it was a, a tough league. But when I think of Phoenix... We didn't really have any character players that I that stand out in my mind. There was a lot of nice guys. And John Gray was there with me and in Houston. And John was probably the funniest guy that I've ever come across in my life. But there was one guy by the name of Howie Young. 
and I encourage you people to Google this guy's name, Howie Young. He was 37 years old. He had played in the National League for Chicago and some other teams. He was a former alcoholic. At 37 years old, he was built like a 24-year-old. And he would be quiet. He would keep to himself. But for some reason, Howie liked me, and I liked Howie. He would always give me attention, and we'd do things together. And, and I really, I think, I think Howie's died, passed along. But so when he played in the, in the National Hockey League in Chicago, this is back when there were six teams. It was pretty conservative that league back in those days. But Howie, he marched to his own drum, which I always liked that in people. He was an alcoholic at one point. I think I mentioned he would talk about how back in the days they would just drink and drink, and that was the way the guys bonded with six teams. And you could drink and drive. That wasn't discouraged back in those days. And he would start to drive home, and he could only get so far. And he told me that he used to pull his vehicle over and look on the boulevard, is what he told me. And he'd go to sleep and turn around when he woke up and go to practice the next morning. Like, that was unbelievable. In the warm-ups, when he was with Chicago Blackhawks, he came out in the warm-ups with a friggin' monkey on his back. Now, think about this. This is this is a conservative six-team league. He came out with a monkey on his back. I'm surprised that he could get away with that, right? But Howie, again, he and he had Mohawk haircut back in those days, which is just unbelievable. He was a good hockey player, could skate like the wind, and, and he used to be able to fight pretty good. And I remember in the WHA, there was some cowards that would try to take advantage of People that didn't fight anymore, and they would play the tough role. So I, I don't even remember the guy's name, but somebody jumped Howie. Howie was strong, and he got the guy down, and Howie lost it. He was choking the guy on the ice, and they, they took him off him, right? So Howie was a little bit crazy still, but I, I, I love the man. And he, Howie was also in the movie called None But the Brave, which also starred Frank Sinatra and Clint Walker. Google that, none but the brave. I don't know how he got that part, but he did a good job. He was somebody I never forgot, and he lived on the Navajo reservation outside of Phoenix with Navajo people. And again, at that time, he had stopped drinking. And what an interesting character. And I know that he'd waste a lot of his money away, and he wasn't that financially secure. And I lost track of Howie. And one time I was going through, I think it was Atlanta Airport, there's Howie walking towards me. And he's got a black eye and his nose is pushed over. And, you know, he was, I don't know, I'm going to say, I'm guessing, in his 40s now, trying to make a buck. And he was playing in some no-name league, just trying to make a buck. And he was getting beat up. But that's what he had to do to put food on the table. So, Howie, I love you, man. And you were somebody I'll never forget. You do public speaking when you're asked, and some of the places that you've spoken at have been uh, jails and prisons where you're trying okay. to motivate some of those people who are down on their luck for sure. Do you have any stories about speaking at prisons? Well, the one that comes to mind was a few years back. There was a fellow that I worked with, and he said that his son needed somebody to go into one of the, it's called the Edmonton Maximum. So they got murderers in there and talk to the prisoners. And he said, I said, well, about what? He said, well, I'll talk about, you know, your training techniques and, you know, maybe tell us some hockey stories. And he got some kind of credit in school for 
doing this. So anyways, I said I'd do it for him. So I go to the Edmonton Knox, and yeah, I've never been to prison before. I really didn't know what to expect. So we get there, and we're going into the general population, and I got a couple prison guards going in there with me, and they take me to an area where it looked like just like a boardroom inside the prison, and, and they got 12 murderers. These guys are all in there because they murdered somebody. And so this was about 6.30 at night. We go in there. The guards say to me, okay, it's 6.30 now. We'll be back at 9 o'clock. And I remember saying to myself, you got to be shitting me, man. You're not leaving me with the murderers just in the general population till 9 o'clock. Well, they did, and I couldn't pretend I was a little nervous. So first thing I said to them, well, I looked around the room, and 11 out of the 12, they looked like they could be your neighbors. They just didn't, they weren't scary looking, but obviously they clicked out and they did something they regret. And so, but there was one guy, he was a, you could tell he'd been lifting weights and he'd been in there. He was a scary looking guy. And he was tilting on his chair with his feet up on the table. So I thought I'd introduce myself and I went around and said, hi, I'm Cam Connor. And they introduced himself and he shook hands and then I got to that great big bodybuilder guy. And I said, hi, and I put my hand down. I said, hi, Cam Connor, how you doing? And he just, he didn't reach to shake my hand. He, he had his arms folded across his chest, and he just said, he nodded his head. He said, my name is God. Oh, yeah, okay, hi, God, how you doing? So I went up, and I started talking to these guys, and I talked to them for two and a half hours, and they told me that I was the best speaker that they ever had in the prison, probably because they can't get too many, I don't know. But they said I was the best they had, and, uh, you know, I think I entertained them for two and a half hours. But one of the stories that I was telling them is, is they'd asked, you know, I talked about training back in the day. And I said, well, when I play with the Canadians, you know, I would do a lot of wind sprints, as the other guys would, and long distance running in the weights. I said, but Guy Lafleur, when he came to training camp, he had told me he hadn't skated all summer, and it didn't even look like he'd been off skates at all. His timing and his speed was there. And, and I said, so what did you do all summer? He says, well, I have a trampoline in my backyard, and I worked out on my trampoline every day. I, at this prison, you can look out some windows, and you can actually you can see from the highway that goes by, there was an outdoor hockey rink. So I said to these guys, you guys have a hockey team, do you? And then one guy says, no, we used to. And I said, why don't you have a, a team anymore? And they said, well, the inmates keep stealing the blades. I said, okay, I get it. And it, as I mentioned, I said, you know, I talked to them about Gila for the trampoline. I said, so do you guys uh, have a trampoline here you work out on? They all started laughing at me. I'm, I'm a little naive. And so they said, what's so funny? Finally, one fella says to me, Mr. Connor, if we had a trampoline in here, we'd put it right up against the wall and hop right over. He said, so they're not going to give us a trampoline. I said, oh, good point. I said, I never thought about that. So that was like the first story that comes to my mind was about uh, speaking to the prisoners. And by the way, when I left there, they said to me, you know, are you going to come back, right? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm coming back. Oh, no way I was coming back, I can tell you. So we ended the last podcast with you alluding to being chased with, by someone with a 
double-bladed axe, so I'm going to interject, and that will be my question, because you can't bring that up and not discuss it, so can you talk about the axe? Well, I was waiting for some, you know, listeners to say, yeah, let's do it, or no, who wants to hear that? But, okay, you want me to tell you the story? It was the off-season, I played well, two years now in the WHA, and I was at a, a bar, and there was some... Some guys that are pretty tough from my part of town in, in our local bar from our area. And there was five guys who we'd never seen before sitting there. And they were older than all of us. And they had, I couldn't even grow like a beard. Uh, I didn't even have to shave then. And these guys had Fu Man. They're a pretty scary looking guy. And so they would walk up and ask girls to dance. And the girls would say, oh, no, thank you. They would grab him by the hair, pull him up to the dance floor. Well, you know, with myself, I, I can't allow that to happen with me in the room. And that's why I had so many street fights growing up. And I, I, I didn't want to fight that weekend. I fought it off too many times. So I said, I got to leave here right now. So I left the bar and I jumped in my, I had a brand new Trans Am. always my pride and joy. And I had a fellow who was sitting with me. He was in a gang. And my part of town. He was a skinny guy, about six foot one, 160 pounds. His name was Lefty. Wow. The old story, reach for a rabbit, grab a bear. If you looked at this guy, you did not know. If you challenged him what you were getting into, this guy could kick your ear off. But he was tough. And so I just said, you know what, Lefty, I got to get out of here. I just can't stick. I'll be getting in a fight. So I left and I just got out of that environment. Around. And then I come driving by the bar, and I saw lots of people outside the, the back of the bar. And so I said, uh-oh, maybe those five guys were fighting my buddies. I better get over and see what's going on. So I pulled my uh, Trans Am up, and I parked a little ways away, and I walked over. And Lefty had fought all five of these guys one at a time. And the other four of them were all bleeding and just standing there. And I walked up, and Lefty had this one guy half under the bumper of a car, like, holding him down. So I remember saying, like, nobody was punching. I said, is the fight over? And both guys said, yeah. I said, well, let go. Nobody's trusted the other guy to let go. So I just put my foot on the guy on the bottom's head and cried the two apart. Well, the one guy who was with, you know, the other group, oh, he was the scariest looking on him. He had that big black man, big boy. He started screaming and yelling. He said, you're effing going to get it. And so I, I watch him because he didn't like what I did to his buddy. So I see him walking over to the trunk of a car. So I said, okay, he's probably grabbing a tire iron. So I had a hockey stick in my chance. Like I, I never fought guys with weapons in my life. It was always fists. But he's pulling out a tire iron. I know. I could use my hockey stick, which is a lot longer. So I said, I'm going to go get, you know, my hockey stick. As I'm walking towards my vehicle, I hear, look out! And I turn around. That guy didn't pull out a tire iron. He pulled out a double-bladed axe. And he is chasing me around the parking lot. And believe me, nobody was going to catch me. You're chasing me with an axe? I ran. I remember my brother said to me, you ran? I can't believe you ran. I said, are you crazy, man? Who's not going to run from somebody with an axe? So I'm running around. I didn't want to show him. I didn't want to get the hockey stick out because then he chopped my car up. 
So I just ran past my car and in and out. Eventually, I ran past his buddies towards my group of buddies. And he was coming by and his friends tackled him. And he's laying on the concrete still swinging his axe. And so it looks like this thing was going to get out of control. And where we were standing, there was a little Volkswagen with his back window open. And they had a duffel bag full of baseball bats. So one of the guys I'm with pulls out the, the duffel bag and he starts passing around the baseball bats. Well, they gave me one, but I didn't want to get into a fight like that. So I passed it off to somebody else. And, and as it worked out, you know, everybody kind of calmed down. But those five guys... They said to my group of guys, you guys are friggin' dead, and we're coming back tomorrow night with some of our friends, and you guys are going to get them. So then they buggered off. So I hooked up with Roddy Piper later that night. I said, man, you should see what happened. And I said, they're coming back tomorrow night to the bar. I said, I'm not going to be there. He goes, yeah, we can, we'll go there. I said, are you kidding me? I said, nah, we can take those guys. And Rod could always talk to me and do shit like that. So I said, oh, okay. So we go back the next night. I was a little bit nervous because there wasn't one of my other buddies, just me and Piper there. And thank God, none of those guys showed up. So uh, I think Rod and I, we would have got pounded pretty good. Did you ever run into that group again? Hell no. If I did, I'd sneak out the other side. Because, again, you want to have a street fight, so be it. But you start pulling weapons, that's getting 